being authentic to me means being honest to yourself in your intentions and in the execution of your work that means that uh, everyone has a set of core values people think of core values or, or principles as uh, things that are necessarily righteous or good or uh, morally correct not necessarily true a value is simply something that is important to you and functions as a guiding principle to your actions in your intentions etc etc those can be obviously not objectively speaking either good or bad you know i don't believe in those binaries but just for simplicity's sake being authentic means again having intentions and enacting work that uh, aligns <laughs> aligns with those values aligns with that brand but a more inwardly focused brand for yourself at the at the core of yourself who are you Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Leaders Podcast. You're here because you believe that you too have been called to build and live an impactful life. Right, I'm quite excited about this next guest that we have for you guys in the Leaders Podcast because not only did she wait uh, for her 20s to start shaking those tables, however, growing up in Zimbabwe at the age of 17, Sanate started the 25 May movement with a desire to create awareness and a sense of responsibility in her community about the future of the African continent. Um, over the years, the movement has grown and now um, facilitates seminal workshops, publishes short films and works with over 24 beneficiaries to provide programs to, to children under the age of 14 for the empowering programs for free. It was only a matter of time that in 2019, Tanate would be named the Diana Award recipient, which is known as the most prestigious accolade any young person can achieve at the age uh, for their social action. Furthermore, she's now enrolled at Edinburgh University in the UK, where she's studying towards her BA in Intermediate Art, a course-based interdisciplinary arts program. Think of the next Ellen Johnson or the next our very own Dada Masiti. Think Tanate Kambrua. Tanate, thank you so much for joining us here at the Leaders Podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. Now, Tanate, I, I've for the longest of time, I think towards the end of year, year two journey, you've been someone I constantly looked up. Um, and, and I think I haven't spoken to you in quite a long time. I'm just genuinely interested, you know, ever since the lockdown, the pandemic, uh, being forced to quarantine. What have you been up to, you know, to keep yourself busy? What, what has been Tanate been up to? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's such a strange period. You have really high highs and really high lows. I experienced uh, peak mental health at some point and lowest mental health at some point, but it's such a roller coaster. but I've been keeping myself busy by working. I'm working at a film festival called Take One Action here in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we're working towards building a program for the 2020 festival, which is going digital for the first time, wow. like most things at the moment are. So that's what's keeping me busy. Um, I do have other projects I'm working on as usual, but <laughs> those are not important at this time. 
Yeah, that's, that's quite exciting indeed. Um, I think I think a lot of the time I found myself specifically with the team at the podcast thinking about you know what what how does this shift with the pandemic mm-hmm. um, kind of uh, force us to think of new ways uh, in terms of the work that you're doing. So quite excited. Uh, I'll be waiting for my invitation to the digital um, um, festival. Yes, of Quite course. <laughs> to see how to, how it will go. Now, Tanata, you describe yourself as a cultural activist. Um, generally interested in, in what does it mean to be a cultural activist, and and why is this? Why do you think this is important? Uh, this role for the continent. So I led a lecture about two weeks ago that was breaking down the role of culture in sustainable development in Africa. And basically, just to sum it all up, we worked with um, a definition that described culture as basically a set of value systems for a group of people. So what I believe is that if you can understand the value systems, the things that drive a group of people, their motivations, their aspirations, their needs, their perceptions of the world, their worldviews, if you can identify what those are and understand how they relate to what they value in the world, you can begin to understand their core identities. And if there's a need you want to solve in a community, for example, uh, maybe there's a water crisis, maybe there's a drought, et cetera, et cetera. Understanding the, those people's relationship to that crisis in terms of what they value can help you to ideate solutions to the problems and the challenges they face. So what I do as a cultural practitioner or cultural activist is I advocate for people to understand culture to understand the things that develop culture, to be able to differentiate culture from tradition, from heritage, and to have an understanding of their role in shaping human life and shaping the human condition. So I'm also, I'm an artist, right? Essentially, I'm an artist and that's, that's, that's what all artists do. And creative arts are simply creative expressions of culture. You know, I, I, that, so, so yeah, it's, it's a bit convoluted, I think when, <laughs> when I say it out loud, but yeah, that's, that's, that's essentially what that is. Yeah. T- talking about, about understanding people and understanding their core values. Um, I really want us to take a quick trip down memory lane, you know, at aging, at eight, at the age of eight, of 17, you are in Zimbabwe um, and you want to start this thing, uh, which I believe is inspired by Africa Day. You call it 25 May Movement. Um, um, talk to me about in that space, what were some of your own personal experiences that kind of compelled you to start thinking about how do I start taking action in my own space? So I think my experience is unique in that I come from a lower middle class family, but I live a working class life i don't know if that makes sense so i grew up um financial circumstances changed drastically throughout my life i grew up in lower middle class and i went to private school and i i had around me people who were least like me i was surrounded by uh white zimbabweans most of the time my closest friends were black zimbabweans but we were minorities in the spaces we found ourselves in and i say it's a unique experience because uh, it's not the majority experience in any african country even if there's a white settler population 
uh, growing up, those circumstances changed, and I found myself on the opposite side of the city, uh, where there were no white people, majority black people, actually all black people. The culture was radically different, worldviews, the whole like life looks different when inequality is rife. What life looks like for the middle class is very different from what it looks like from for, for the working class yeah. and so forth. And so I became keenly aware of the differences that were either economic or cultural that existed, but also I became, I began to link it to Zimbabwe's colonial history mm. and how that divided the country racially, economically, financially, culturally, and I became to kind of put dots together and I had an interest and a passion for other African countries and just for black people and for understanding what black life looks like around the world. And I, and I, I had questions. Why does it look like this? Why does it seem at the time I didn't have the language, but I, I recognized there was a white supremacist world order and um, a colonized deeply colonized and still is i shouldn't use the past tense still mm-hmm. is a deeply colonized world world order and it, it frustrated me and so the 25 may movement was my attempt to answer these questions and to bring people together to help me answer those questions and to change people's minds hopefully about you know where does where do these you know, ideas about black inferiority uh, come from. Why is it that what we know definitively as science is Western science? Why is there an undervaluing of indigenous knowledge systems? Why? <laughs> you know, I think I'm a deeply curious person. And so I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest, with the 25 May movement mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. No, I didn't. That's the yeah. truth. I, I, I wrote this poem about, um, you know, that was me kind of redefining called we are africans and i was redefining what africanness or blackness can be as opposed to the stereotypical you know very much poverty porn kind of wars rife hungers rife i wanted to redefine that and so i brought a group of i think we were about 15 of my friends together and i said you know what let's let's perform let's perform this somewhere let's get the message out and so at the time i didn't let me know if i'm going on and on and on and if this is still interesting at all. <laughs> <Not me laughs> it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> so at the time uh it was around africa day i had this idea and i said you know what let me launch it around africa day because that the you know pan Africanism was was core to it and kind of a, the Afrocentricity and an Afrocentric um, mm. worldview. So, I went to a local radio station in the country called Star FM and I asked them for a slot on the radio to just talk about these things and ask people and find out you know what is the temperature are people are people thinking the same way I am, and the manager of the radio station said that he would only give me airtime if I promised him that I would make this movement sustainable, that it wouldn't be a one day thing, which was the initial idea. I was just going to do this for Africa day and my life would go back to normal. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, no, I would only give you radio, radio time. If you do something with this, I really want, I I really believe in you. And I believe that you're onto something and I want to see you do something. And so that was the first person who really kind of, 
pushed me and said, do something. Yeah. And I had never thought about that. I hadn't conceptualized myself as a young leader as yeah. now I'm, I'm referred to. Uh, and I, but I said, well, I really wanted the radio time. And I said, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we, we, we went on radio and kind of one thing led to the next. It kind of spiraled into this movement. We were jumping around concerts, Africa Day concerts that were happen, happening at the time. We started a Facebook page, started an Instagram. We got the poem recorded by um, friends who had a studio and, and made yeah. um, films and videos. And then it was on the internet. Mm. And once you're on the internet, you don't get off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I think the 25-way movement, how you can understand how it's growing is that it was not initiated as some organized collective or some organized movement that had a long-term goals, et cetera, et cetera. That's now something I've had to be challenged to say, how do you take an initial idea and transform it into a movement that can have longevity that can have a long life that can be impactful in the long term and so what what people see as the 25 may movement is deeply a work in progress and i think i would i would like to think that many organizations run that way right that you're constantly looking at the context and the climate in which you exist and you continue to work on your idea or your 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 group of people, your movement, your community. And that's what the 25 May movement is essentially. I'm, I'm still in the process of defining it, still in the process of really pinpointing a niche, so to speak. But yeah. that's, 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 that's me and that's the 25 May movement. Yeah. I think what I love about that is that while, while listening to you, I start to think mm. about a conversation I had with myself uh, a couple of, of weeks ago thinking about Mpo's body of work, right? And as I'm, as I'm listening to you, it's kind of thinking the same thing, like, oh, like this thing is not just a, a one-day a one thing, but how do we start thinking body of work or thinking longevity, thinking something that, not, that is not only bigger than ourselves, but something that, that is designed to stand the test of time, which I find quite interesting. I'm also quite interested, Tanati, in, in this shift, Right, so it started off as a just a quick uh, radio time, and then one thing led on to the other. Through that process, what were some of the internal things that you had to change? Did you had to become more assertive? What were some of the internal challenges that you started to experience as this thing is starting to grow? Um, imposter syndrome, first of all, like that whole. <laughs> feeling of it's, it's anxiety really and being like am I the right person to do this what am I undertaking am I old enough I think especially at our age we find our credibility being challenged all the time we find our credibility being questioned our you know maybe it's just a phase maybe it's just a young yeah. young thing like I'm saying <laughs> I was I was 17 at the time and I didn't know how to run an organization. Like, I don't know how to run an organization now when I'm 21, you know, yeah. four years later, there, there are still things I'm, I'm, I'm having to learn. But now I have to, from, from just being a teenager, I had to be somebody who was uh, skilled in the strategic, you know, strategically managing a collective. 
um you know so that's that's a really big task how i i had to learn kind of how to view myself as somebody who's much older than me who runs such mm. kind of bodies of work like you described i had to now start thinking like those people think it wasn't now just about my a levels and the boy who dumped me last week or whatever like <laughs> my my life had to really change gears completely i had to start learning fundraising how do you fund a movement how do you fund an idea how do you fund uh, a company and then now i've brought in the word company how do you decide what kind of an identity your collective will have will it be a company will it be an ngo will it be a private voluntary organization will it be a collective of artists will it be a cooperative company all these questions and i don't i, I don't even know what like you know i hadn't done business studies i hadn't done um arts administration uh, at master's level it, it was just now these are things that you now have to start finding answers to with limited resources limited time because you're in full-time education which i still am yeah. um but still somehow make it work and have impact and prove that there's impact and that the impact is real and so fun as it was many times and even now it's, it's 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 there's a deep pressure that comes with that a deep pressure in running something that you want to have again longevity and you want to genuinely be impactful but at the same time you actually just you can't commit the time you need to do that I can only commit to the 25 May movement on a part-time basis yeah. as long as I'm in full-time education, as long as I'm working a job, as long as I'm outside the country of its operation, which I currently am. So it's a journey that comes with opportunities, but also comes with some, some real challenges too. And, and, I'm, and I'm guessing, you know, um, were there at the time, you know, any support structures either family or individuals that you know still till today have, have have made or helped you make sure that you bring this mission to fruition yeah i think definitely i don't think i could have done anything <laughs> at all that i did with the 25 men movement alone from the fact that i said like the initial kind of performance um mm -hmm. art that it was based on was not just me it was 15 other girls mm -hmm. um my mother especially has been phenomenal driving me halfway across town to this radio station every week uh, driving me and the team wherever we needed to be whether it's um a new film we were shooting or an outreach program or etc the 25 May movement has been largely self-funded um because of the the kind of structure yeah. we want it to have we want it to be something that's based on mutual aid practices where the community takes ownership and responsibility mm -hmm. of it um and obviously that's a whole another challenge but a lot of the kinds of small things that you need to run an organization the day-to-day -day running those things were financed by my mom mm -hmm. uh because i didn't i didn't have a job i was in school yeah uh and financed by my mom let me say 
when she could barely finance a meal for her family in the next week. And she still made those kinds of sacrifices and said, this is something that me, wow, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. She said, this is something that means something to my daughter and I want to support her through it. My dad as well, um, more morally supporting me. He kind of has a very entrepreneurial business mindset about him. And so he asked me the hard questions. How are you maintaining? Yeah, how are you maintaining momentum? What's your what's your finance structure for this organization, etc. But not once did he discourage me from from pursuing that. So I, I am, I am a surround, and these are just two people I've identified, but I'm my, my partner, my romantic partner, he's extremely supportive and he saw, he was there at the beginning of the movement uh, and he knew we, 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 we were together before it started and up till now, in many ways, he's still a part of that just by being a part of my life. It's something that affects me. So yeah, these are just three people, but I can, I can go on. There's no way. Yeah. Like I don't believe in I don't believe in self-made. Uh, this yeah. idea of yeah. people being self-made, I think, is illegitimate. I can recognize when people work very hard for their own dreams and for their own lives, but to suggest that we we operate in isolation um, is dishonest for me. Mm. And, and I guess hence hence the saying it takes a village to grow an African child. Um, yes, I'm actually, also generally <laughs> interested. You know, um, what was your your first project that you guys ran successfully that kind of led and started to get the ball rolling? What was that, the first thing, the it thing that when you're taking a stab at Yes. Uh, and I get so excited thinking about it. So um, it's a program that's still running now. It's called Conversation Circles. Basically, they are like fireside chats based on, you know, traditional storytelling um, kind of kind of methods you know how in many African communities you gather around a fire and you tell stories and that is a site of you know knowledge sharing wisdom sharing storytelling etc and so that is the model that uh, the conversation circles are built upon and so the first conversation circle I think happened in September yeah. of that same year that it was launched or maybe the year after i don't remember the details are fuzzy but um it was de- it was the first so after the the initial 20 um africa day celebrations it was the first kind of like you're saying the hallmark to say okay this is actually something that exists in the, and they they're doing something so uh we got a space really really good location in the middle of um the well just outside the city center rather in harare it's um um basically the what can i what can i the property is shared between um alliance francais which is the the french alliance in in the country like the cultural alliance um and also a bar and bistro called share zandi and uh, i worked with share zandi because i just found her to be more accessible the owner of uh, that restaurant and um i asked her to do like little finger snacks for the food and she said she would do them and she would let me use like the space right outside her restaurant it was like just a a beautiful little piece of like grass that was well trimmed great location um 
yeah, and the, the topic of the conversation was colorism. Mm. So we really took a dive. We really wow. took a dive. We went and we were talking about uh, what does colorism look like on the African continent? You know, light skin privilege. Or, and there are all these colloquialisms uh, that are, are different, obviously, depending on where you're from. But there were just a lot of colloquialisms that we knew at the time that described darker skin people or lighter skin people, racial differences in the in the in the country, in the city, and the, the conversation was really about where did these things come from? What is their impact on, you know, when we're talking about desirability and beauty standards, when we're talking about um, self-esteem and inferiority complexes, when, you know, very much racially based ideas that affect people on a social and a cultural level. So, yeah, that was a resounding success in my opinion. And I was I was so happy. I probably cried when I, that happened. And, and I mean, it was something small and a conversation like that can only hold about at maximum 20 people. But I felt I could see them and from the and from the feedback I could see that I had I had done something that meant something to these people in that moment and those kinds of conversations were not being facilitated, let alone by a seventeen or eighteen year old and her team. Do you know what I mean? And so Yes, I was really oh and we yeah, I mean it was just it was just great. We even got banners printed. <laughs> they sound like small things. They sound like yeah. small small things, but when you're in my position yeah. and you can start to see your ideas and your work come to fruition in ways that other people take seriously and in ways that you can take seriously, it's the small details that really matter. Yeah, I, I, I generally agree with that. And I guess, I guess something that brings a sense of, of fulfillment, you know, um, thinking that you're not doing this to receive any form of recognition or validation for anybody, but you're just doing this thing for yourself. Like you've intrinsically um, kind, of, um, kind of understood what this means to you. Um, talking about recognitions, um, in 2019, you received the prestigious Diana Award um, for the crucial work that you've been doing. Talk to me about the process to winning this, but also most importantly, what I'm interested in is post winning this award, how has winning this made the work you do a lot more easier or helped you navigate some of the waters in leading this organization? Okay, so the process of that. So the Diana Award works um, uh, and actually it's coming full circle because they're about to announce the 2020 honorees um, in about two weeks. So it's it's been a year. You are nominated for this award. It's something that you have to be nominated for by somebody, some, some stakeholder, uh, whether it's in your team or somebody you've worked for, but the person has to have actually quite intimate details about the organization and the running and the management of your initiative or your idea. Mm-hmm. And so I was nominated by one of my colleagues who uh, now works for the 25 May Movement, uh, but is an independent arts practitioner in the country. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, that's it. You kind of nominate someone and you don't know how it's going to go. And then yeah. uh, and then they were informed that I uh, had been awarded 
the price and then they informed me wow uh yeah i remember i think when i found out i was on my way to dinner at ala and they called me yes (laughs) (laughs) i think i was on my way to dinner and they called me and they said you have been awarded the diana award and i said what um yeah it was just like yeah i was just going i was just going for dinner <laughs> and i got a call um, yeah well yeah i was i was probably with me at the time um so yes that happened and then i was contacted by the awards themselves and obviously they were now asking for just um details uh about me like uh, for example asking for a photograph you know um standard standard requests uh, so yeah one once having kind of gone through that process i couldn't come so the award ceremony happens in london and i couldn't be in london obviously i was at la <laughs> um so so i missed that ceremony which kind of breaks my heart but it's life uh but anyway having having been awarded um that prize remember i said something about credibility um just now in talking about how especially as a young person it takes a lot to prove that you are just as committed to excellence just as capable just as driven as somebody 20 years older than you who is in the industry and has been in the industry you have so much to prove as a young people and the, the pressure can really be debilitating but having received this award i think people begin to perceive you differently it's kind of like a, a, a stamp of approval yeah and not that i was not that i was seeking approval from any one or any body per se because i i have a deep conviction about the work i do and i'm proud of the work i do personally it's an intrinsic fulfillment that i receive from it however when it comes to um getting access to resources access to opportunities being heard being given space having people create space for you to do the work that you want to do people will question you all the time and they'll question your credibility you have to prove why you deserve to be in a certain space whether you approve of yourself or not is not even on the table Hmm. and so i would say the biggest thing uh, the diana award did for me was for other people it's 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 kind of um grounded how other people perceived me you know i think my work is always the proof is in the pudding kind of work where you can you can tell what kind of person i am you know my work ethic you know uh what drives me you know what i'm capable of just by working with me or by uh being in proximity to the work i do um but now with this award or with this kind of yeah, I just I just envision it as a, a, a wax seal. <laughs> People are now saying somebody else believes in that person. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has recognized that this person. A group of people have come together and have selected or identified this person from a pool of other highly achieving people and said that this person's work is as important as they say it is. So that is the most important thing that the Diana Award has done for me. And then I guess, as as they keep saying, that the results don't lie. You know, you can ignore the work. 
and the work uh, that the organization is doing. But at some point, you know, with the result, you'd be like, man, there's no way you can ignore such. Um, and and one, one of the things that I found quite, quite inspiring, and then I found myself quite really thinking about what does she mean when she's saying this, is that I got a chance to actually read, read one of your, your posts, not your post, one of the poems that you posted online, um, entitled, um, Subjects as Critical as Breathing, in which you state in the, in the, in the quote, and in, in the poem towards the end, that um, silence is crucial, objection is a death wish, somewhere in between those two, uh, somewhere in between the two is a place where my country lives. I really was like, wow, okay, what, what does that not to be? Um, and I thought, well, I'm kind of really interested in, in unpacking what, what did that mean and how, and how does this quote kind of encapsulate your experience growing up in Zimbabwe? Yeah, so I don't know why people ask me about this poem all the time. It's easily the poem people are most intrigued by and like that's so that's so interesting i i didn't take it as seriously as maybe i needed to when i wrote it yeah. <laughs> um but um basically yes the line the line actually reads uh silence is suicidal objection is a death wish somewhere between the two is the place where my country lives mm. growing up in a deeply conservative country politically, culturally, I found really difficult. Um, I am an outspoken person mm. and I am also somebody who believes in their own ideas. I believe in my own thoughts. Um, I found it really difficult in the context of being censored, whether it's you're censored by your family members, you're censored by your school and your teachers and your headmistress. Uh, I say headmistress, sorry, because I'm thinking about a particular school where the headmistress did everything she could to just be a stumbling block (laughs) in my life. Yeah. Um, and also censored by the state in just knowing that there isn't really freedom of speech Mm. anywhere, Mm. you know, not just politically, even culturally. Conservative societies are founded upon shame and founded upon silencing and silencing anyone that kind of brings out feelings of fear and shame within that context. And so um, I found it really difficult to, to speak out and to object. Like the word, the word in the poem is object. I found it really difficult to object to whether it was patriarchal norms that I was expected to uphold or fulfill. Mm. Uh, it's obvious that I'm a feminist and I believe everyone should be a feminist. So I try not to use that word because it's just like, why are you labeling something that like I don't know if you're not a feminist I don't I don't really know what you do with your life. <laughs> um, and so yes, I found it uh, really difficult to 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 
to not conform. I talk about conformity a lot. You are pushed to conform and pushed to silence yourself and pushed to censor yourself because speaking out threatens someone. Yeah. Whether it threatens the your the patriarchal head of your household yeah. or it threatens um the state or it threatens whatever somewhere somehow your existence is a threat and as a black woman i have found myself threatening to so many people um at so many points in my life and i think i will continue to carry that identity and so this poem uh, for me really kind of encapsulates that deep anxiety of being silent to these things feels really suicidal it feels like you're killing your spirit you're killing something deep within your spirit but at the same time if you object you are asking to be killed you're asking to be silenced you're asking to be shut down and so you have to now live between those two realities and what does that even look like what does that space look like where you want to speak, but you can't, and you want to be silent, but you can't. Yeah. And I find myself all the time in that space. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what I can say about that. <laughs> I think it, it, it's quite commendable because I, I think about, well, as a South African, what I've often seen on, like from the media, you look at, at the time when you're doing this work, it was under the Mukabe regime. You know, I'm thinking that not only at the time are you putting your your life at stake, but it's also you're risking your family's lives, you know. Um, just thinking about the, I don't understand the intricacies of that society in Zimbabwe, but what I kind of assume, what, what would be some of the things that, that you think about and then kind of make you rethink, do I really want to articulate what I'm about to say? Um, but saying it anyway. Uh, now, Tanata, you've got this notion also that I think for myself, I think shifting from working in, in, in the enterprise or, or entrepreneur, whatever, shifting to start the Leaders podcast, I was thinking a lot about and started to realize how hard it is to be a creator and how easy it is to, to, to criticize, right? Very easy to criticize. But once you're on the other side and actually have to create, it's, it's like the amount of thought that goes into that. Um, and, and one thing while researching you is that I noticed you've got this notion of, of how the world should start taking the creative economy seriously. Um, and I was quite interested in what are some of the action steps as creators you think we could be taking to, 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 to kind of make the world take this economy quite serious as we do? Yeah, demand your value. <laughs> know your value, then demand it. Don't accept, don't accept payment via exposure yeah. or payment via connections. Be yeah. paid money for your services, yeah. you know? And I know it's easy to say that, you know, and I'm also saying that from <laughs> so much, I'm saying that from so much privilege, but I know what uh, the creative sector in Zimbabwe looks like, and I know that it's such a tight space uh, that has um, feels like it has limited space for for new people and for other people, and it's just it's, it's a mess in my opinion. <laughs> but I think it's a it's a mess in many places. This is not particular yeah. to my country. Um, from the conversations I've had with fellow uh, creators 
uh, from my country, many of them who've been in the industry longer than I've been born, like longer than I've lived wow. my life. The grievances, yeah, most, most of my colleagues are much older than me. Mm. Um, most of the grievances uh, I've heard are about funding. Obviously, that's the, that's the first, that's, the, that's, that's really, that's really at the core <laughs> of it all. <laughs> uh, who is funding the creative sector? The creative sector, who is funding uh, the creative economy? You know, where, where does, because for an economy uh, to survive, there has to be a circulation of some commodity or some, of some currency, right? And where is that currency coming from is the question. Um, it's a long, very complicated landscape, if I can describe it in that way. There is a history to why there is an undervaluing of uh, cultural and creative produce in African countries. Um, and I guess this is why I'm very intentional about being to the best of my abilities, decolonial in my practice, decolonial in my ideology, in what I, in what I pursue, because I recognize that uh, a huge part of colonial intention was to destabilize or destroy a culture in order to introduce another. Mm. And that in itself is a violent act. And I, at the very beginning of this uh, conversation, Paul, I described uh, creative arts as creative expressions of culture yeah you know yeah. music art poetry and even these are even western ideas of what art is i believe art is the way we live art is an act of living especially in our um in our in our communities i, I think of myself as the shana woman and think about for example the performative nature of a bridal prize ceremony when Lobola is being paid, there is a there there is a there's there yeah there is a there is a socio cultural script to what that performance looks like. You know that's performance art. But when we conceptualize performance art, we think about theaters and stages that are very Western, you American or European ideas of what art looks like. That's a different conversation. What I'm getting at is that all these different creative expressions of our culture, of our value systems, of our personhood cannot exist if there is a destabilization of culture, mm -hmm. which is exactly what colonization did. It destroyed languages. It destroyed indigenous knowledge systems. It destroyed our conceptualization of spiritualism in indigenous or African ways, you know, our notions of spiritualism completely colonized. And so the symptom of that is a struggling creative sector. Wow. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a symptom of that. And so now people value industrialization, capitalism, infrastructure, building roads, transport networks, com communications networks, internet, artificial intelligence, all that stuff is necessary. I don't mean to undermine its value because I recognize its value. What I am saying that it has, is that it has, much of it has been overvalued at the expense of undervaluing another sector, yeah. a sector which at its core is about building 
society, building culture. They're called the humanities. They are about our human essence, our human core, what makes us human. And if you neglect what makes us human, I swear you now see the world is burning down right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. now, like we are amidst a deep cultural crisis. Yeah. But people fail to recognize it as such because I think also they're just, there's a, there's a deep kind of, um, there, there's a lack, cultural theorists like myself are not given a lot of airtime to really explain these things. You know, because from the very beginning, and I'll talk in my personal life, from the very beginning, explaining to people uh, that I am not a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer immediately made people undermine me and undermine my work and undermine my ideas. Like I'm saying, you're always having to uh, prove yourself and show your credibility it's even worse so if you are an artist or a creative or, or somebody who works in the humanities in some mm. capacity mm. i hope that makes sense Mpoy. perfect sense got it <laughs> thanks um in, in one of your previous interviews tanate i think it was with i forgot the organization but one of your interviews where they document you you speak about um taking our lives as they are and not trying to live in spaces that do not exist. Um, which I found quite, quite interesting in the sense of, I kind of sometimes think about, does this space allow me to be an authentic human being? Um, but also just generally interested, like when you were saying that, like not trying to live in spaces where we do not exist, what did it mean? And, and how did understanding, how, how did understanding what it means to be authentic, kind of help you in becoming the Tanatsu you've become? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I really don't remember which interview that was. And I think the context of that interview would help me uh, recall okay. where uh, I was coming uh, from, uh, where when I said that. Okay. <laughs> but I, I can still, yeah. Okay. Let, let me talk about okay. authenticity. Okay, sure. Let me talk about, let me talk about authenticity. <laughs> Being authentic to me means being honest to yourself in your intentions and in the execution of your work. That means that uh, everyone has a set of core values. People think of core values or, or principles as uh, things that are necessarily righteous or good or uh, morally correct not necessarily true. A value is simply something that is important to you and functions as a guiding principle to your actions, in your intentions, etc., etc. Those can be, um, obviously, not objectively speaking, either good or bad. You know, I don't believe in those binaries, but just for simplicity's sake. Yeah. Being authentic means, again, having intentions and enacting work that uh, aligns mm. <laughs> aligns with those values yeah. aligns with that brand yeah. <laughs> that's your personal brand and i don't want to conceptualize it as a brand that's very outwardly focused in what people see but a more inwardly focused brand for yourself at the at the core of yourself who are you 
what do you value? Um, for me, uh, those values are courage. Courage, I would say all the time. I speak about courage all the time. Yeah. Courage is a core is a core value of mine. Integrity is a core value of mine. Compassion is a core value of mine. Um, social justice is probably underpinning all of those. Um, So living authentically for me looks like, and we're not perfect, mind you. Let me just put a disclaimer here. We're not perfect. It does not mean that because I've said these are my values that I am able or courageous enough all the time to live up to them. I'm challenged and I'm tested all the time. But if I can pursue to live as somebody who has values that matter and that drive them, then I'm living authentically and I'm living intentionally. You know, I think oftentimes, especially when a lot of our work has a lot of people from the outside looking in to you, you know, what does that look like when it's from the inside? I always think about the inside. How do we do we create space to protect our core selves? And this is sounding really abstract and philosophical right now. But I just hope I'm communicating it yeah. in a way that makes some sense. It's, it's really about, yeah, your intentions and your actions. Are they honest to yourself, to what you value? And oftentimes you can feel it when they're not. You yeah. can feel yeah. when... Yeah. You know, it's it's uneasy and you really feel like you've compromised or jeopardized yeah. something in yourself. You've compromised a principle that is really important to you. But we we learn and we grow. But yeah, I think being authentic is really important because, oh, I think now I understand what I was saying. Now it's coming together in the context of authenticity. <laughs> Living in the space that doesn't exist is what happens when you're not being authentic. It's what happens when you're trying to be someone else or you're trying to... And, and you know what? Like, this happens to us all the time. I'm constantly questioning myself. Why do I want to do this? Why am I an artist? Why this? Why this? Why this? Questioning yourself and being critical of yourself and just being critical of the world in general, I think, is key in being authentic. But living in spaces that doesn't exist is me pursuing something that I have not aligned with my, my core values, right? And so now I am living a life or making a decision in something that doesn't exist and that's unsustainable because it will expose itself as something that is ingenuine as something that is not real that doesn't exist you know i create from an authentic place and i speak from an authentic place in my opinion because i i i don't know i i feel that these things are, are me i feel alive i feel like i am fulfilling yeah. What I have decided is my purpose. Yes, I'm fulfilling my purpose. I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose and that is really invigorating. And if it wasn't, then I would know I was living in a space that doesn't exist. And so living in a space that does exist is stepping into myself, identifying what is it that is at the core 
of my value system, of my passions, of my convictions, stepping into that is living in a place that does exist. And that will sustain you because it's real. It's a foundation. It's there. And, and I guess, I guess as it, while you're talking, I think it brings much more, by, by trying to figure out what it means to be authentic, kind of brings much more mental clarity about what's your purpose. You know, I think recently myself, I've been juggling to, to what extent can I quantify if I've even grasped my purpose, you know? Um, and while listening to you, I think not viewing it as exclusive circles, but figuring out how do I become authentic is, is kind of something that I, while you're talking, got me thinking about how that even ties in with purpose, you know, because I think at its core, you try to find the core principles, as you say, that kind of govern your life. Um, talking about authenticity, what would you say is your message to the world? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, a difficult that's a difficult question. Um, to decide, and I've said this before, but I would like to challenge people, whoever's listening, to decide whether they want their actions uh, and the decisions that they make to be governed by fear or to be governed by courage. And courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is, despite the existence of fear, you're going to decide to do that thing that you want to do anyway, or that decision anyway. Oftentimes, we stop ourselves from pursuing uh, our dreams. That's such a cliche, but the things that we want to pursue can be small things, small things like... Uh, Today, I need to decide whether or not it's important for me to seek rest yeah. or to work and seek productivity. Yeah. And sometimes, especially for people like me who have workaholic tendencies, it <laughs> takes a lot of courage. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to say, no, I need to rest, actually. I have reached my capacity and I need to now look after myself in a different way. And... For me, that is a decision that I would describe as being governed by courage because fear would say, no, you have not done enough work. You are inadequate. You need to work harder. You need to prove yourself even more. Even though my body and my capabilities are saying something much different. In that moment, me deciding to continue working will be a decision that has been made or determined by fear rather than by courage. So my point is, it can be something very big or something very small, like a decision in a moment like that that I've described. Uh, but make it a principle for yourself to decide, am I making a decision based on courage or based on fear? Mm. Quite insightful indeed. Um, I must say that while you're talking, I was like, after this session, I'm going to go back to this part and actually listen to this part. Because um, I think you, you talked a lot of gems in there. Um, on that case, how can our listeners and our viewers stay in touch with you in terms of the work that you're doing, uh, your social media handles, and, and just everything? How do people 
stay in touch with Tamate? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is to head over to my website, tanagambora.com. Tanagambora.com. It's very easy. <laughs> yes, go check it out, Um Yeah, I just decided that I needed to have all my work in one place uh, because it was, oh, yeah, I was starting to feel like it was all over the place and I just needed a one stop shop. So to speak. So head over T A N A G A M B U R A dot com and my Instagram handle and my Twitter handles are there. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to receive emails <laughs> saying anything at all. Um but yeah, I'd love to love to connect. So yeah. Thank you so much, Tanate. I think while you know what I enjoyed about this episode while talking to you is I kind of see elements of tapiwa while I'm talking to you um, and, and, you know, kind of revive that, wow, these, these individuals are quite, are quite amazing individuals. But also what I love is, is the depth of this authenticity in terms of, you know, thinking about how and over time kind of starting to, to craft this, this body of work, but more so just the you as a person. You know, um, someone I for, for I remember in my year one, year two, from a distance, I admired deeply um, your Disneyland address. And thank you so much um, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, uh, there you have it from Tanate Gambura herself. Guys, go read and check about her on the social media pages. We'll be sharing her website on the Leaders Podcast page. Um, once again, here at the Leaders Podcast, we believe that as more and more young people go conscious of their unique purpose, as they discover their hidden pearl, they essentially add value to society in the only way they can. Please remember to follow us on our YouTube Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify at the Leaders Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and share with at least three people who you believe will find this episode quite valuable. Tanate, thank you so much. And to our viewers, thank you so much for watching this episode. Until next time, thank you.